The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello and welcome to Prospect Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world. Thinking back on the Hagerstown Suns during Christmas, it is me, Jordan Schusterman. I am joined by Mike Farron. Jake Mintz is not with us, but he is uh, he has better things to do. We are here, Mike Farron. We are recording this the day after Christmas. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, here, Mike I'm good, and I am a grateful one that you have a Hagerstown Suns cap on. And two, that before we started recording, we could reminisce about some of our times enjoying games in Hagerstown, which I would say is probably not an affiliated ball in part because of the facilities. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> perhaps. But I am wearing a new Hagerstown Suns hat. I guess it's not technically new, but it is new for me, courtesy of my brother-in-law. Wonderful Christmas gift for me. Um, but Mike, it's time to it's time to talk about talk about prospects. It's it's yeah. Wednesday. We are still as we move past Christmas, we are probably going to get some more action. I know we've had some moves over the last few days. We're going to talk about Kevin Kiermeyer and Mitch Garver uh, later on in the week. I believe Jake will be joining us from his. I don't know where he's staying uh, over on the other side of the world in Australia, but we'll hopefully have Jake back on later this week. But this is still Prospect Barbercast, and we have some prospect topics to get into that I'm excited to uh, to dig into uh, with you, Mike. We're going to talk about a little bit more about Yamamoto, not just the fact that he's short, though I guess it might come up again <laughs> to some degree, uh, comparing him to Paul Skeens and, and how we talk about international free agents in relation to prospect lists. Uh, and then in the second half of the show, we're going to dig into the Dylan Cease trade rumors and all of the various different versions of, of trades that many of us are spending times crafting uh, as we anticipate a deal with the White Sox at some point in the coming weeks, months, who's to say. So we're going to get into all that. But Mike, first of all, uh, good good Christmas. You you chilling all, all is well in, in Arizona? Yeah, it's been, it was a, a nice, largely quiet Christmas. My in-laws came over um, for dinner. I was uh, FaceTimed with my family back in Chicago, which is where all the nieces and nephews were celebrating. So that was great. We have a much busy, busier New Year's coming mm. up. We're going to have a house full of people starting on. Oh. Uh, well, let's see. This comes out on Wednesday. So tomorrow, we're going to have, we have like half a dozen people coming, and um, that's going to be a lot of fun. How was yours? Oh, it was, it was great. As, as I mentioned, not only did I uh, get a, a Hagerstown Suns hat, I had a wonderful time uh, with <laughs> with my wife's family here in, in rural Ohio, uh, where it is, I got to say, we went on a walk today, only, only like 50, 54 degrees. Last year, this time it was negative ten. So wow. practice. So this is b- basically we're basically in Phoenix, is what I'm telling you. It's it like sixty three really here today. So like <laughs> okay. you're you're not that far off. Yeah. All right. Well, how about that? Uh, all right. Well, but I I do anticipate that we are going to have a, a good amount of of news uh, coming. It, it's I, I I'll probably mention this again on Friday's show, but I was I was looking comparing the MLB trade rumors you know free agent list. At this time last year and this time, you know, this year and last year, nearly 40 of the top 50 had signed before mm-hmm. New Year's. Mm-hmm. And this year we're not even at half. Um, so we're going to get a lot of action, free agency trades and whatnot. 
Uh, but hey, that's not what we're here to talk about too specifically, because these topics, these topics go beyond, these go a little bit bigger picture. And I wanted to, to dig in a little bit more on, on this uh, Yamamoto uh, topic that kind of percolated on the this year this year internet over the last few days specifically how we talk about him in relation to prospects and this came up in a few different ways the the first of which was i think an interesting uh, kind of decision made by baseball america this is a, a publication that of course we we follow we we you know we'll, we'll follow all these sites but ba has historically ranked international free agents and, and prospects even if they're you know in their late 20s as prospects on top 100 lists because they are considered rookie eligible players. And so in that sense, it makes some amount of sense to compare them to other players who have not yet played in the major leagues as prospects. And BA announced this year they're not going to be doing that uh, anymore for a couple of reasons we can get into. And then the other interesting thing that kind of sparked some discussion online was uh, a kind of a, an inbox question that was answered by our, our friends over at MLB Pipeline, Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, about where Yoshinobu Yamamoto would rank if MLB Pipeline was ranking him in the top 100. And after Yamamoto signed the largest deal ever given to a pitcher in free agency, the answer from both Callis and Mayo that he would not be number one or even you know, the number one pitcher necessarily, I think caught a lot, a lot of people by surprise. And I thought was ripe for, for a discussion here yeah. on this podcast, because there's a lot of different directions we could kind of go with this. So when you start, let's start with the, with the first chunk. How do you, you know, how have you historically viewed the concept of ranking international players alongside, you know, real prospects? It's a little wonky, right? Because the level of competition that you're playing, especially now, and I think it's improved really in the last 15 years, and specifically in NPB, uh, the Nippon Professional Baseball League in, in Japan is probably a higher level, all told, to than AAA is. Although it's likely close, so I don't really have an issue with it, and never did have an issue with it. In part because, you know, by rule, these players are rookies, right? This is you would have the same thing in, you know, let's use college sports as an example, right? You have, often they're called like newcomer of the year, but if you had a transfer that mm. came into a power five conference in whatever sport, and that was an award that was given out, it wouldn't matter if they'd played two or three years at another school at the same level, they're still considered the newcomer there. Um, I think that, that that's kind of similar here, although the the level of play I don't think is the same as Major League Baseball. So I never really had an issue with it at the same time in a lot of these the cases of the players that we've seen that have come specifically from NPB they have been professionals in the highest league in their country for seven eight sometimes if they've come as true free agents nine years and that's because because NPB free agency is after nine seasons and that's a significant difference, right? You've played at the highest level in your country. You've dominated for a number of of seasons. Um, there was no place to go other than Major League Baseball. And you're kind of trapped by the you have to, unless you are a true free agent, you've got to be posted by your club. Your club has to be willing to do that. So um, I really, it doesn't matter to me either way. Like there have been some, Interesting rankings over the years with international players, you know, um, I think, but what pipeline ranked Shohei Otani number one a few years ago because he still was technically came over in that we were texting about this earlier the, as an international amateur because he was because of his age, even though he would played professionally at the highest level. 
I, you know, I didn't have a problem when Matsuzaka was ranked and when Darvish was ranked or Tanaka was ranked. Mm-hmm. But you know, if they if if BA wants to change it, I certainly have no problem with it because you are theoretically talking about somebody that's a little bit more polished. I will say this in Yamamoto's case, you're talking about a guy who's not that much older than some of the top prospects, right? He's only 25. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a little bit, at least in terms of age, he lines up better, even though the experience is significant. And, you know, in the case of Yamamoto, you're talking about a guy that's won the Japanese version of the Cy Young Award three times. Like he's right. basically like he's he's basically Clayton Kershaw as an undersized right handed pitcher in Japan. Yeah. And this is where I struggle with kind of gauging it, especially in Yamamoto's case where he is not that much older. I think I mentioned how Sam Dykstra of MILB.com, you know, pointing out that he's born the same year as, as, you know, Landon Knack and, and mm-hmm. some of these other Dodgers pitchers that he's going to be, I mean, obviously not competing with, but in the rotation with, you know, Frasso and Gavin Stone, right? He's right in their, their age. But when we mentioned the level of competition, I think that's really important, but also still really hard to kind of grapple with because as we move this discussion towards a comparison of Yamamoto and Skeens, this is where we start talking about, okay, so now we're comparing the SEC and, you know, even if you take it to the end of his his time at LSU, which was in the College World Series facing teams like Tennessee and then Wake Forest, right? But whatever, this is two starts. But let's just say the SEC, we're still talking about 90-ish innings, 80-ish innings in the SEC mm-hmm. of a one. So again, the most simple way to look at it, Paul Skeens at LSU. And I know he had, a, of course, a good two years at Air Force. Let's just focus on Paul Skeens at LSU, one of the greatest pitching prospects we've ever seen. It's 100 you know, in 22 innings of 169 ERA, okay? In Division One at the high, what you could say is the highest level of Division One baseball. And then you have Yamamoto, who has essentially an identical ERA in a thousand innings, okay, right. in NPB. And so at what point do you start to, and then, then there's a few different ways you can sort of logically work your way through it. You could say, and this was some of the arguments I, I saw online before we get to where Cal Mayo kind of slotted them and where we would kind of think about it, is, okay, before we get to what Paul Skeens would get on the open market, could we conceive that Paul Skeens, who is four years younger than Yamamoto, if he goes to NPB right now, could put up the same numbers that Yamamoto did over the next four years? Maybe, but like, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, like that's really hard for me to think about. And so then where, where does this lead us? Because this is what makes this conversation so challenging. It is clearly not apples and oranges and why it is so hard to put them on the same list. But if we try and force ourselves to, how do you, how do you, where do you kind yeah. of land or lean, I would say? So, so let me defend Mayo and Callus just mm-hmm. a little bit in this, in that yeah. if you're talking about, a pitcher like Yamamoto who is pretty polished and is largely a finished product. And let's say you have him rated, you know, we, we, we've kind of, we, we haven't really had a discussion about the 2080 scale, but let's mm-hmm. say we, we have him as um, what's considered a plus player, right? A, a player who would be, um, you know, a 60 on the scouting scale or a B one on the ABC scale or a first division starter, basically a number like a, a top half of number three starters are better in major league baseball. Um, that tends to rate as a 60. And that feels like a pretty safe grade on Yamamoto based on all of the information that we have on him, the way we've seen him c- compete internationally. Maybe it's a, even a little bit better. We won't know until he faces this level of competition. 
But with Skeens, I think there is still a little bit of mystique because there's a feeling that he's not polished and so there is more upside to him, right? And so you could see him being considered a 70 or an E2, which is more into that like back of the the number one starters or top part of number two starters in the way that they're analyzed. And we're not talking about on each team. We're talking globally. There's only ever yeah. like five to seven number one starters at any given time right across Major League Baseball. But we're talking about one of the best, you know, 15, let's say, pitchers or 20 pitchers in the game. And I think that there's that perception with Skeen. So defend him on that. That's That's, I think, probably part of, without knowing for sure, Part of why you would do that and go, okay, well, I would put him behind Skeens, but ahead of some of these other guys. Realistically, though, what we're not looking at with that discussion is the risk and the polish, right? Because on a prospect list, you're really looking at upside as much as anything. And Skeens, who is a pretty safe bet to be a big league starter and probably a pretty good one, isn't as polished as Yamamoto is right now. I mean, the feeling is Yamamoto is going to step right into a rotation and basically like, what's the downside for Yamamoto? He's Hiroki Kuroda, you know, like, and I'm going to use Japanese players just as an example, because that's the competition that they've had, right? Like if you go back and look at Hiroki Kuroda's career, like that guy was a really damn good starter for like seven, eight years. He was a Masahiro Tanaka, right? Like it's like, it's very similar in that regard. And so you've, That's kind of what the floor is with Yamamoto, and clearly the Dodgers think that there's more upside to it. And because he's 25, they feel like there's there's going to be more to get. And so, like, if you're looking for which player is going to help a team the most in 2024, without a doubt, Yamamoto is that guy. But if you're to take the entirety of their career and what their ceiling is, I think it gets a little bit more mushy. That said, I think you're probably better off taking the sure bet than the guy that they're you're hoping gets to that yeah. point. And that's a whole nother discussion on skeins too. Totally. And and I think that that's what makes it hard when we want to start jumping to, oh, you think skeins would get more than 300 and whatever million dollars on the open market. And it's hard because we just don't have a data point for high, the highest level talent at mm-hmm. age 21 being on the open market. It's just not something we have in, in baseball. We don't have that, right? And so it, even though Yamamoto being so young, and I think that the number that we ended up at with Yamamoto was the product of an extreme set of circumstances that is both how good and accomplished he is and how talented he is and how safe he is and how proven right. he is and the bidding, the teams in play that were bidding for him, right? That is what drove him up to, that's the thing, like, do I believe he is a true talent $375 million player? I don't think so. And I think Yamamoto is awesome, right? And so where Skeen's just true talent is and what teams would be willing to play in the open market, we have no idea. We just, there's no way for us to really know that. But to your point, you're thinking about the ceiling and you're thinking about upside, like, especially with pitching prospects. Sure, we heard the refrain commonly during Skeen's draft, you're best in Strasburg, best in Strasburg, best in Strasburg. And yeah, Strasburg did in a lot of ways completely live up to it. And we know how many bumps were along the way of that journey, let alone where it, of course, ended up on the back half of his career. But I think about another Pirates number one overall pick like Garrett Cole, right? Garrett right. Cole was another guy who was as safe as it gets and was a very good pitcher for quite a while. And then suddenly he was the best pitcher or one of the five best pitchers, right? right? And it took it took a while, right? It took a little bit. And so with Skeens too, I think that's kind of the thing that you're thinking about. But it is just so, so, so hard 
to compare these two for all these reasons, not just the competition, the age and all these things. And it's a fun exercise, but because we don't have the data point for what players at that stage of their careers are worth on the open market. And this is where you get into this conversation of why the draft is just a ridiculous, you know, value, unbelievable value for teams beyond right. anything that we ever are willing to admit. That's why it's it's really an, an unfair discussion to even attempt to. to, to I, I think it's pretty safe. And I've not asked teams about this, but I would guess that if Paul Skeens had been a free agent at this age, coming off the season that he did at LSU, that he probably would have been in line for a deal that started with a two. It would have been a two hundred million plus dollar deal based yep. on his upside. I think that's I think that's a fair assumption. Now um, that but, said, now he may not have been the highest paid guy coming out of last year's draft because I think the position players tend to skew a little bit higher is, in that. And so Cruz and Lankford and maybe even Walker Jenkins, yeah, probably who was the the fifth overall pick by the Twins, uh, would have been ahead of him on that list. Yeah, which is which is the the last part of this this discussion that I definitely wanted to hit on because. Back to the the reference that that Callis made in, in his answer about how he didn't feel comfortable, you know, putting him ahead of a guy like Wyatt Langford or or some of these or Dylan Cruz, right? Some of these other hitters at right. the top, let alone Jackson Holiday. And it's also interesting because what's another data point that we sort of have, although it's a little misleading? Jackson Churio just signed an extension before he played a game. Now that's different because the leverage there is is different. And w- what have you proven? And how old are you? And He's not, you know, obviously he's not able to negotiate with the other 29 teams. He's just negotiating with the Brewers. But it is an interesting data point of like, okay, what are teams willing to pay players that have barely proven it at the major league level? You sort of see that with some of the hitters, what the Mariners were committing to Julio, what the D-backs were committing to Corbin Carroll. All of that said- What the Rays did to Wander Franco. What the Rays did with Wander Franco, right? All of that said, now none of those numbers came close to three. I guess the Julio contract technically sort of got 300 plus, but not really, right? With a lot of incentives involved. What I the reason I bring that up is, okay, skeins aside, okay, we we've said like like the pitching prospects in general and projecting the risk even of someone this good. How would you compare? Like, would you consider? Do you consider more valuable than Jackson Holiday? Like, I that that's that's the one where it's it, it is probably hard to imagine. Like, what does Jackson Holiday get on the open market right now? You know, that's that's yeah. the real question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there tends to be like. I I will admit that this is one of my biases, but I don't think I'm alone in this, in that you tend to value the position player more heavily than you do the pitcher. And that has nothing to do with the importance of pitching, right? We've all been raised on pitching and defense or what win you championships, right? And I don't think that that's entirely wrong. I think what it is is that the there everything is a risk assessment, right? And the risk on pitching is always going to be greater by the nature of pitching. Like God, pitchers get hurt at a higher rate than position players do. And so that's where some of it comes in. And that's part of, I think, the reading on, you know, people that may have had Dylan Cruz or, or Wyatt Langford ranked ahead of Skeens on draft night is that that's something that had to had to factor into the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's you're right. Like if you're talking about putting Yamamoto on a prospect list, he probably doesn't go ahead of the very, like the elite, elite position player prospect. But you know, like if I pull up and pipeline hasn't updated there since what, right. the end, of, it's like towards the end of the season. Right. So like, but let's just use them as an example. Mm-hmm. Like Skeens is the third best prospect in baseball. Right. They have Skeens ahead of Cruz. I think in part because they had him ranked slightly ahead of Cruz. If you're to look at that list right now, I think Yamamoto 
probably is the second or third best player, right? Yeah. I think there's there is downside risk with Jackson Chorio, who's number two because of his youth. Um, you know, youth works in his favor, but it also can work against him. But Yamamoto probably factors in there. It's it's just that like if you told me that in ten years the guy that had the better major league career was Skeens, I don't think I would bat an eye at that, right? right? Even though I think there are some things with Paul Skeens that are, you know, at least give you pause, right? Like that's the the one of the things that didn't get talked about enough. And I actually just talked about this last week on Power Alley. We were talking a little bit about Skeens and, you know, the data on his fastball coming out of the draft was not particularly good for a guy who throws 100 miles an hour. And when I say that is a lot of the information that we get now in terms of of how technology has changed the way player evaluations look is that we have an idea of what what characteristics a fastball has that have success, right? They either have a ton of ride or come from a lower arm slot and play high at the top of the zone. They have a ton of horizontal movement or sink on it. And Skeens, for a guy that throws 102, doesn't get as much ride as you want, and he doesn't get as much run to the arm side. His fastball doesn't move as much as you would want. Now, are there adjustments that he can make? Sure. Now, I to me, his best pitch is still his changeup. It's not even this, this sweeper that he learned last year, the sweeping slider at LSU. That was a pitch that he got a pretty good feel for relatively quickly. By about the third week of the season, it worked pretty well for Paul Skeens. But it's a little different play- facing pro hitters. Um, and also, like as much as this has been talked about with Yamamoto, it doesn't get talked about with college pitchers ever. The ball in professional baseball is different than the ball in college, too. And so Skeens is trying to to make those adjustments. Now, the makeup on him is crazy. Like when we talk about makeup, it's a combination between character and work ethic. And both those things are off the charts. Like he's the f- only sophomore in the history of the Air Force Academy that has been named a captain. And like that should like tell you a little bit about him as a person. Um, and I think Paul Steens is going to make an incredible amount of adjustments, but in terms of the polish rate at this moment, he's not Yamamoto. And that's, that's, that's where fine. I think a lot of the, yeah. the pushback on what was said on that and on their podcast last week was because of that. Yeah, I know. I think that that's, that's totally fair. And, and yeah, but it is interesting again, when you're, how much data are you working with? Right. It's easy to look at the, watch clips of Paul Skeens and be like, what do you mean? His fastball looks great. It's like, okay, well, Western Michigan, it's a little bit different than the Cubs. <laughs> so right. there's like the fastball, especially against some levels of college competition, is going to work no matter how it's shaped. And at the same time, the starts where he did get touched up a little bit was because the fastball was getting hit. And, mm-hmm. you know, you even see in the SEC some of the top levels, some of the best hitters at those levels, guys who won't even necessarily go on to become big leaguers are going to time that up. So all of it is is fascinating and, and how where he kind of fits in, how aggressive the Pirates are going to be with him, let alone, like, to be honest, like their track record of pitching and player development, which is not the most sterling at the moment, <laughs> or at least not as long. Uh... Now, now, it's, now, listen, it's changed. Who's in charge there, uh, obviously, right? Shouts yeah. out John Baker, their new farm director, who I full, wholeheartedly believe in. But the the other outside kind of the the pressures on Skeens and and the timeline that he goes on and where he ends up failing and learn and making those adjustments could be for the best for him could be could be yeah. challenging right and we we're, we're going to find that out uh, in a very real way i mean there is a there is a real chance that Skeens 
professional career mirrors Coles a little bit. Yeah. I think who was their last, yeah. you know, number one overall pick as a exactly. pitcher. In that Cole, you know, he Cole's numbers were good in the minor leagues. They weren't exceptional. He wasn't Strasburg in the minors, but he never really got challenged. Strasburg never got challenged. And there is the chance that the first time that Paul Skeens really has to deal with failure is at the big league level. And like that's a good thing for a prospect to deal with failure, right? Yeah. Because that's where you learn how to get better. The problem when it happens at the big league level is that all of a sudden the spotlight's on you and and it, it, somebody is going to be waiting to scream bust at the top of their lungs if he goes out and has a 70 RA in his first four starts. I mean, hell, former par- pirate Charlie Morton's a great example of that. <laughs> Go look at Charlie Morton's early career with the Braves. It was no bueno, right? Yeah. When he got traded to Pittsburgh in the Nate McLeod deal, people were like, he was still a, you know, a prospect, but everybody's like, this guy has never had any success at the big league level. And he's put together a hell of a career. It's just that once you have to learn how to make those adjustments, whether it's to your pitch shape, to your pitch mix, to where you stand on the rubber, any number of different things in mentality, whatever it is, you don't know until you get pressed. And we don't know when that's going to happen with Paul Skeens because we haven't, Quite frankly, seen him enough in pro ball to have an no. understanding yet. No, not even close. And and I will say though, and am I biased because I was in the building and it's one of my strongest baseball memories? There's one Steven Strasburg, at least as far as my generation goes. I understand we had Dude, other, that was sick. The I, best, I understand like, there I was were there other, the opening night too. Yeah. yeah, I understand that there have been other um, pitching debuts, rookie sensations earlier this century that stuff wise, you know, lived up to it in some respects, but. When we when you kept hearing the same refrain since Strasburg, since Strasburg, okay, great. So now we're expecting Skeens to show up in May 2024 and you know strike out 13. Like I just I'm I'm just not expecting that of literally any starting pitcher at all. I'm not expecting it of Yamamoto. I'm not expecting it of of whoever the next you know got of we've seen the guys at the top recently with Grayson Rodriguez and blah 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 blah. Right. So it's really hard. But the reason why you still end up picking Skeens one is because it is harder to find that dude at the very 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 top of the pitching, you know, hierarchy than it is the awesome. I mean, in some respects, this is, this is a much larger conversation, but I feel like that's what teams are chasing. Um, if anything, it feels more rare. Yeah. I think that that's kind of the traditional feel on it, but I would push back that pitching comes from lots of different places. Oh, and oh that's generally sure. speaking, the star position players are the ones that come from the top of the draft. Yeah, no, I know, which is maybe why it's a, foolish thing to do but that's fine that's fine we are we are hoping that the very of course we want to see all these these players succeed and, and schemes from a work ethic standpoint too that's also what you're buying into you are you're buying into that that to how much better he got you know even in his mm-hmm. year at lsu you're, you're going to hope that that kind of trajectory continues on um in pro ball so yeah a lot of elements to the yamamoto versus Skeen. I, I did find that really interesting so thanks for going down uh, that road with me mike uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we return uh, we're going to talk about Dylan Cease, who talk about uh, untraditional paths to uh, where they currently sit on the, the you know pitcher power rankings. Dylan Cease is a great example of that, so maybe we can get into that. We're going to take a quick break here on Prospect Barbacast. We'll be right back with my good friend, Mike Farrell. Hey, everyone. Producer Chris here with a brand new housekeeping note about our merch. Basically, we have a bunch of new stuff. So if you've been looking for a baseball barbercast themed beanie or bucket hat, or even a t-shirt with one of those cool pockets on the chest, well, you can stop looking and start buying because they're all available right now, just in time for winter. Just go to podswag.com slash baseball and don't leave yourself clothesless this winter. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com 
slash baseball. And welcome back to Prospect Barbecast. Jordan Schusterman joined by Mike Fair and Jake Mintz. Not with us on this episode. Hopefully you don't miss him too much. And hopefully he doesn't miss this upcoming conversation about one Dylan Cease, which may involve Jake's beloved Baltimore Orioles. But Mr. Farron, I know we wanted to talk about this because we got a little bit of reporting before Christmas about kind of the latest in the, the Dylan Cease trade discussions, of course, with Yamamoto finally signing. We can anticipate that the starting pitching market will continue to move both at the top with the likes of Snell in Montgomery, maybe Giolito, Stroman, Imanaga. But the trade market, even after Glass now, is still very busy and Cease appears to be the one that I think from the purposes of our conversations on this episode of Prospect Barbercast, mm-hmm. will likely involve the most prospects <laughs> in the case that he is indeed dealt, or at least uh, players who are you know earlier on in their in their careers. And I think that the the reporting that we've gotten so far and the kinds of asks that the White Sox are making in this case, I think, are instructive and, and interesting as we move forward into the way that we talk about you know trades and try and project trades. I've I've said oftentimes on on this show that trades are always more fun because no matter how much time you spend trying to put packages together you will not figure out what's actually getting put on the table. Like oftentimes there's some element of the trade or there's some team involved or there's some prospect that you are just not thinking of. And these teams get really creative and there's guys that teams value in totally different ways than what you see on the public on the public side of things. And that certainly impacts what these packages look like. So I'll throw it to you before we start getting into some specific teams. What's your kind of read on Dylan Cease's value in general? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is one of those those things that it's worth taking a little bit of a step back and looking at Cease over the last couple of seasons to get a, a true understanding of where teams view him. So he's two years away from free agency. Last year was a disappointing season from a results standpoint for Cease. The year before was significantly better. I mean, he was what fourth in the Cy Young Award, I think, in twenty second two. Second, second, I'm sorry, second in the yeah. Young Award. Yeah. Um, he had a terrific year, high strikeout rate. He His walks have always been an issue for him, but they were more under control. Last year, the strikeout rate dropped a little bit. The walks were a little bit higher. But if you were to look at some of the nerd numbers, as I like to call them, like fielding independent pitching, which is an ERA predictor that uses strikeouts, walks, and home runs allowed um, to kind of guess what future ERA is going to be. And it's, it's better than the current year ERA for predicting the future. Cease's numbers were much more in line. His peripherals were much more in line with what he did the year before. So that's part of the reason why he's still valued so highly, even though he's coming off a year where what was his ERA was near five, right? So mm-hmm. um so I think it's it's a little bit like the Zach Wheeler situation a few years ago with the the Phillies when, you know, he was a free agent and people were saying, well, Wheeler hasn't really done much. And you looked at the data and you were like, this looks pretty good. And now Wheeler's gone on to be an absolute monster for the Phillies and one of the handful of the best pitchers in the game. So I think that's where the industry views cease. The other part of this is that, and and this is the part, I, I'm actually kind of curious your take on this too, because we've already gone through some of my biases on when it comes to prospecting. Uh, another big part is like, what do the White Sox want and need? Because the White Sox have been historically thin, at least in terms of their farm system. And um, 
even if you go back to when they had the number one system overall, if they went through that rebuild and what after 2016, it was a very top heavy system. It lacked depth and specifically it lacked position player depth. Um, they had some guys that really hit in that group. Um, and then they had some ones that didn't. And the problem with not having a ton of really good prospects is that when um, you need to fill from within, um, if you don't have viable options in the upper minors, then you have to go outside the organization. And there, for most owners, there is a finite number of dollars that you're willing, they're willing to spend, right? So that's been a big issue for the White Sox organization. And I think that's part of what we have to talk about with Cease is like, like, what are the White Sox actually targeting in a trade and what should they be targeting in a trade? Because that may help to explain some of what the value lies and and like should they be going for ceiling or should they be going for depth i think are really important discussion points yeah i mean the the basic place to start is okay why are they doing this why are they trading season to begin with well because their roster was bad got worse because they traded a lot of talent away and now projects to even in the al central be really, really rough, especially if they make even some more moves, which is why the general reporting we've heard is anyone that's not Luis Robert, who I would have to assume when you look at his contract and extension from a trade value standpoint is probably like top five or 10 in baseball at this point in terms of just best contracts and projecting forward. So if we assume Almost Luis untradeable, Robert, it's so good. Uh, yeah, like, untradeable. That's the problem yeah, is so, you can't get fair return. Exactly. So, but beyond Robert, like they, they're open for business and ceases their biggest chip left. And that's where I think, again, this gets into the the kind of the what's the not motivation, but also just kind of the principle of like, what kind of trade are we trying to build? Are we shooting for the moon? Are we trying to get a foundational piece or are we trying to fill out this roster? Because while they did seem to target pitching a lot in some of the trades that they've made, we saw them target pitching in the Rule 5 draft. They're you know, continuing to do that. This, I mean, this position player group, even if you acknowledge Colson Montgomery, who we've talked about on the show what I'm looking at this core and I'm saying who who's really on this next good White Sox team on offense. You know, some of these, these are big names in Moncada and Vaughn, but not necessarily Eloy, right? Not necessarily ones that I'm like, hell yeah, like they're definitely in the lineup in 2026 at this point. That's just, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know where you're at on some of those guys in particular, but to that point, that's why I kind of think, man, this team needs everything. This team <laughs> needs to be going in any direction possible. But to your point, and we can start, you know, looking at some of the teams, you know, reportedly involved, Different teams can offer very different things. You know, if they if they want to try and build out some more foundational offensive pieces, you're going to look at a team like Cincinnati. You're going to look at a team like Baltimore, right? Mm-hmm. If you're looking for for even more pitching, who they already got some from, you know, at the deadline, you're you're probably going back to the Dodgers or honestly Atlanta. You know, Atlanta's farm is about as thin as it gets, but they at least still have some arms that you could conceive of of being appealing to a team at the stage of the rebuild that the White Sox are in. So I don't know. I know the Cubs are another team that had come up. The Cardinals earlier in the offseason seemed like another team that has a lot of offensive you know, firepower that they could essentially move potentially, but they don't seem to be as much in the mix. Is there one team that stands out that you would want to start with? I know the Reds are one team that we heard the most recent kind of reporting about who was reportedly involved in the White Sox asks. I think it's also important to remember as we get into some of these Reds names, obviously, if you're Chris Getz, certainly early in the offseason, you should absolutely be asking for, you know, four top 100 prospects. Like, well, that's that's how the, 
Same reason Scott Boris is starting with his Cody Bellinger ask at $300 million, right? Whatever. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's how you're going to probably start when you have someone that you, you view as, is is very attractive. So which team would you, you want to kind of start with in terms of who could yeah, make sense I, as a partner? I mean, I think the Reds make about as much sense as anybody, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's good. And the, and the reporting that we had over the weekend from both Bruce Levine, uh, the score in Chicago and Jason Williams in Cincinnati uh, inquirer, um, they, they, kind of painted a similar picture right at least two if not three starting pitching prospects and a position player and that's you know that's a tough ask like if you're to look at players who get dealt in the winter there's not maybe the same def- level of desperation for starting pitching in the winter that there is at the deadline at the deadline somebody desperately needs somebody they're going to make the trade right in the winter the benefit you have is that you have more suitors that you can theoretically push off one another, but you don't necessarily have the one that's willing to, that's feeling the pressure enough that they have to go all in and give you this incredible package of return. Now that said, like the names that we heard for the most part linked to the Reds were pitching and the Reds real depth at their major league level is young controllable position players. And that's the, to me, one of the major leads that the White Sox have. The White Sox have two very good prospects. You mentioned Colson Montgomery. Brian Ramos is the other one. I think there's a little bit more question about Ramos because of some approach issues. That the, uh, he's a third baseman. He's probably going to end up taking over from Mankata when Mankata's a free agent after this year. I think Mankata has an option for next year, but the way he's performed the last couple seasons, it seems unlikely that it would be um, exercised. And so what you need is you need players who have an impact, I think, on your major league roster. They've been one of the worst offensive teams in the league the last two years. And they're not going to get any better anytime soon with the group that they have. Now, that said, they also have brought in a new you know, head of pitching and Brian Bannister had been with the Giants and been with the Red Sox before that. And uh, Banny has a really great reputation. Full disclosure, I've known Banny for a long time. We're, we're, we, we know each other really well. I think very highly of him. But I also would like to see what he does with some of the arms that they have in the organization. And I think trying to he, to find a way to add impact offense makes the most sense. So the Reds, the Orioles, and the Dodgers would be my focuses um, in a trade talk. Now, the question is, is that Chris Getz's? Because to your point, the deals that he's made so far, with the exception of getting like Nicky Lopez, have been focused way more on pitching. And we know that you have to acquire a lot of pitching to get enough guys that actually make it at the big league level because of attrition and injury. Yeah. Which, and again, I think Cease in particular is just such a fascinating, you know, case study in terms of the kind of pitcher that he was as a prospect and, and what he's kind of become. And I think you laid out a, a good understanding of, of where his value is across the league. I think too, if I'm the Reds, you know, I'm, of course you, you see some of these names being floated in the packages, Rhett Louder, you know, they just took him in the top 10 chase Petty, who they had acquired in a trade from Minnesota, who's really taken big strides, you know, Connor Phillips, who made his major league debut, like the Reds have had a lot of success, you know, I would say on both sides, but they're still trying to find, of course, they had a lot of, lot of health issues um, in the rotation last year, which is, which is really what ultimately sunk them in the wildcard race. But man, I mean, Cease, the other thing about him is, and I don't know if you view this as a good or a bad thing, dude has been unbelievably durable. For someone of his profile, yeah. he has not missed a start in four plus years. 
And you could say, okay, that's why he's about to blow, right? If you want to be real cynical and you say, all right, well, this guy's throwing, you know, all these sliders and throwing 98 and blah, 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 blah. Like that makes it more risky, whatever. You could also say, hey, durability is what you're going to bet on if you want future durability in a lot of respects. I bring that up just to say, if you're the Reds and if you're some of these other teams who are in position, what is the kind of deal that you're even more comfortable making for a guy like Cease? I don't know. Like you do look at the, the depth of the infield names that we're trying to figure out. Okay. And, and they just signed Candelario, right? We know the right. Reds are trying to win in 2024. That sparked a lot of conversations about, okay, well, does a Jonathan India trade make more sense? Now, Jonathan India obviously makes zero sense for the White Sox, but if you look younger, at somebody like Noel V. Marte, even a guy like Encarnacion Strand, who, at late, you know, he's a much more risky, more limited prospect, but at least someone who has proven it at every level of the minor leagues and has, you know, five, six years of control, a bat that you could build around. Now, that's not exactly a profile that I think the White Sox necessarily want to lean as heavy into, considering the kinds of players that they've had a lot of struggles with in recent years, where it's, it's very limited defensively. Marte is someone that I think could make a lot more sense I think when you look at the Orioles and Dodgers, I'm fascinated when we do think about the Orioles. We've been waiting to see when are they going to maybe flip some of this depth on offense. It's just hard for me to figure out who is that young hitter that they would be willing to move. I mean, they've been so, so, so reluctant to make any. I mean, we've even saw the slightest bit when they traded uh, Daryl Hernays to Oakland for Cole Irvin. And he's Hernays looks like he's actually could be a pretty good player. But it's really hard for me to sort through all of these guys in the upper minors for Baltimore. We moved Jackson Holiday to the side, but between Kerstad and Norby and Westberg and, you know, all these guys that like, I don't even really know who has the most value. And it's hard to know which right. of those would make sense as a centerpiece. Because that's what I'm thinking about it with the cease discussions. Who is the best player they could get? It is going to be more than one player. But who is, what is the the kind of ceiling for what they could be going for here? Yeah, I think, I think you're like, you're trying to get, and, and I would add like Mayo and Ortiz or two others in the Orioles system. Yeah, right? like this, they're this, loaded this, in the you're always going to forget Colton one. Hauser's another one yep, who may, right. you know, be blocked a little bit in the outfield. Like there, there's just a ton of, of, of talent there. I mean, to me, I think you're like, ideally you're acquiring the player that has the highest floor, or highest floor and ceiling that you can get, right? It's a guy that you feel yeah. like is going to be a regular and maybe can be more than that. And to me, Acquiring a player that has a high ceiling gives you more room for if he doesn't become a superstar and can he be just a solid, and I use just in quotes, mm -hmm. a solid rec regular, right? Can he be a contributor every day in the lineup? You know, some of that has to be, you have to mitigate what the risks are, right? If you've got a guy that has approach risks, I mean, we talked a lot about swing decisions last week, that's a guy that you're not necessarily trying to acquire because the risk reward is too great. If you've got guys that have, that make good decisions, that they're able to know the difference between a strike and a ball and that they make solid contact on pitches in the zone, like they're going to be tougher to acquire, but that also probably reduces the depth of the trade that you want. I'm always a fan of acquiring ceiling over depth. And this is going to give us our first real test on what Chris gets wants to get. Now, I thought his trade with Aaron Bummer was really good in the sense that he got a couple of guys who could be starting pitchers. Um, you know, you're buying really low on Mike Soroka. Jared Schuster probably pitches at the back of the White Sox rotation on a not-so-good team. They get a good defender in Nicky Lopez, right? Like, there's a lot of different things that went 
well in that deal for a guy who was, again, like Cease, the peripherals were way better for last year than what the actual numbers were. I think you're looking for a little bit more ceiling here because you do win with impact offensive players Mm -hmm. and the White Sox need to add some to go with Robert and what they hope is Montgomery. And we should add Jefferson Caro in that as well. Or is it Edgar Caro? I'm sorry, Edgar Edgar Caro, the the catcher that they got from the the Angels who once they put the real baseball back into play in the Southern League last year instead of the pre-tacked one, his numbers looked much more normal. So like you're trying to find guys that can fit with that and you need a lot lot more position players. Also, they really need a right fielder. Like Colby <laughs> Towser would be great. But, he could play right field right away. But this is the thing. like They need so much that like you are probably just looking for someone you believe could be a 65 one day, right? Um, or, or a 60, you know, or, and it has a, a 50 floor or something. And again, going through all of those Orioles guys, does one stand out to you as an Orioles headliner that you would feel most, you personally, Mike Farron, would feel most excited about? Because the challenge is that so few of them have actually played that much in the major leagues, but almost all of them have destroyed AAA. <laughs> and yeah. so so I don't know, again, like Kerstad was the top five pick. Hauser was a top pick, but there's like more concerns there. Mayo, you could argue, maybe has the biggest ceiling. Like I, but he's farther away, but he also reached AAA. So I don't know. And he obviously is a little bit more along. I don't know where you view Mayo defensively, but again, the Orioles seem to be the team that is the most reluctant to deal these guys. So maybe we shouldn't be as focused on them as, as a possible suitor, but they also have the most of them. And so they right. still feel like the most sensible one. Um, whereas again, then if you go back to Cincinnati, think about a guy like Spencer Steer, who I don't think, again, he's not, he's never going to come across as the, the sexiest part of the deal, but like, you just got a full season of him being a damn good major league hitter who right. can f- at least fake it at multiple positions. And I know his defensive advanced numbers were horrible, but like I watched a lot of Spencer this year. I think he's really good. And like that's a talk about safe. Talk about you know what you're getting there. Maybe there's a little bit more upside offensively. I just don't well, know, man. Like that's that's where it's so tough. Let alone like a Michael Bush type who's proven nothing at the major league level, but has also proven everything in AAA. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think those are the guys, though. That like, I don't think Steer is a guy that that the Reds are going to deal. Like, I don't think that's the I case. Agree. But but when they acquired him, that's the kind of player that you're looking for, right? Exactly. You're looking for those position players that you feel like can help the major league team, and at least Steer is going to be like a two to three war player, right? Like, yeah. Which is a solid everyday left fielder. <laughs> like you need guys like that, right? Noel V. Marte. It's what, it's why I think Nick Crawl's work in the rebuild in Cincinnati was about as good as you can ask an executive to do, because he didn't say we need to add all of this pitching. They added pitching. They got really interesting guys. Brandon Williams and Connor Phillips, whose name has come up in these trade discussions. Like these are interesting arms for sure. But what they did was they targeted key position players in all these deals. Noel V. Marte, Spencer Steer, Christian Arroyo, whose name has also been linked to Edwin. To, yeah, Edwin. Yeah. Edwin Arroyo. Excuse me, not Christian Arroyo. I'm in a, like, apparently I'm in like Malaprop. <laughs> it must be Christmas week. So like, they, it's like, they strip everybody's name today. But like all of those guys, they, they make sense, right? Like yeah. it's, again, like you're getting something and somebody that can impact the big league level right away. The guy I think I would be targeting if I were them is is Heston Kerstad with the, okay. the yep. Orioles. I have been a fan of his since he was an amateur. I think there is a chance that he is an impact corner bat. Maybe it's at first base, which isn't great for the White Sox because they have other more pronounced needs in a first baseman. But I think he's a guy that's going to hit in the middle of a lineup. And they really need somebody that can hit in the middle of a lineup. And if you get that with, you know, 
Luis Robert, and if they hold on to Aloy Jimenez, which is a possibility, like all of a sudden you're starting to look at a credible middle of the order. Like you have to get a little bit of bounce back from Andrew Vaughn, and you need to get, you know, probably more out of Yohan Mankata than you have for, to have any hopes of of shocking the world in the central. And I don't necessarily think that that's going to happen, but I think that there is a chance to build a good middle of the lineup core if you can acquire those guys. Now that said, like all of these names that we heard that we're linked to, we've gone through this entire exercise and what 80% of the names that we heard linked to the white Sox were pitchers. Yeah. Although let's also remember that, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong. Chris Getz didn't run the deadline. No, he did not. They, they, you know, finally canned Han and, and, and Kenny after they made all those trades. Right. And so now Getz was obviously a part of the organization, but that's another thing when we think about, okay, what are they targeting? What kinds of deals are they looking to do? You know, who knows? You know, that's, that's uh, the, the kinds that they added all those kinds of pitchers. But maybe, as you said, I think we're going to learn a lot about it. But, I mean, you you do kind of have to nail this in a lot of respect. I mean, listen, they're already going to be bad. We know the direction that they're going. In some sense, the pressure's off Chris Getz. But also, I mean, it's been a really, really – this is, as you mentioned, back to 2017 and what, what it felt like the White Sox were building towards. They failed. They failed miserably, right? Got to the playoffs once, twice, uh, didn't do much with it. And now it is it is a barren roster that has a couple things that you're holding on to, yeah. which is Luis Robert is one of the best players in the world, which is Colson Montgomery's, you know, a top 10, top five prospect. And then after that, man, you got a lot of building to do and you got to hope that a lot of these guys that you just traded for and will continue to trade for are going to, you know, move in the right direction. Yeah, but Colson Montgomery is not a sure bet. Either. No, like, and not I at really all. like Colson Montgomery, but like this is the if you start looking at his gameplay total you look at the strikeout rate like in the minors it hasn't been flawless and oh, i think there's a feeling among white Sox fans that whatever they're doing is just you know like paul de young is there to just you know to be there until montgomery is ready and then lopez golf yep. clubs and that's the right. question like the problem is, is that it may not happen this year right totally for, for him. I mean, his numbers in Birmingham in 167 plate appearances last year were, what, 244, 400, 428. That's pretty good overall. He had a 400 on base percentage. Yeah. But strikeouts are still a little bit high, and we're talking about a guy that hasn't played a full season of games yet. I, I guess I just, I totally agree. He's, to me, far from a sure thing. I just mean from where we felt when he was taken 22nd overall to now yeah. is undeniably a massive success so far, oh, right? Yeah, Long, I mean, like first round Indiana high school kid yeah. to like late in so the first in, round. So in that and, sense, that's been a, yeah. a win, but long way to go to knowing for sure that he's a foundational piece. But man, you look at some of these other, some of these other pieces and you just... You just there's just massive risk and and uh, it's it's gonna take a long way to go and but again if you hit on enough of them in theory in the central you know you will you will maybe be able to get back into it uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, all right, that's the, again we could talk these trades all day because I, I do think it is going to happen and and when it does finally happen, assuming it does, I guess they could hold on to it until the deadline. But assuming it does happen, we will certainly react to the return here uh, on Prospect Barbacast. Before we say goodbye, Mike, I did want to hit on uh, just another minor trade that we would not even sniff if this were a normal episode, but because it's just you and me, let's talk about Estevan Florial <laughs> for five minutes. Listen. Yeah. It's, and, and here's the other thing. If this same trade with these same talent level players with the same track record and it wasn't a Yankee, I'm not sure we would spend five minutes on it. 
But because Florial and Yankees, the way that Yankees prospects are talked about and the way that they are often thrown around in trade discussions because their value is often inflated beyond what it maybe actually is in the industry. Florial's a fascinating uh, case, a guy who showed so many tools early in his career despite not really being very well-known when he signed as an amateur. Really interesting background. He actually signed originally under, there was some basically issues with his his identity. He signed under a, a false identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually that got sorted out and it was made clear that he was born in the Dominican. He is, uh, his mother is Haitian. Um, but basically he, once he made it through to the complex, through the complex league DSL in A-ball, he really took off. And he was just kind of the classic profile of, wow, like it looks really good, but he's going to strike out a lot. And is it going to, is it going to sink the rest of the profile? The fact that he's swinging so often, even though his physical tools, the speed, the defense in center field, and then power that has really come on over the last couple of years in the upper minors. Ultimately, the Yankees never trusted him nearly enough to give him real run in the major leagues to the point where Yankees fans were like, oh, well, we'll just put him as a headliner in some trade for some player, even though his value was never actually uh, really there. But really interesting journey for him. Now he goes to Cleveland in exchange for Cody Morris. Seems like the Yankees trying to kind of backfill some of the innings that they've lost, as we've talked about in recent episodes and trades and Rule 5 drafts and all that stuff. So uh, do you you have any uh, thoughts on Florial and his ascent and now where he goes to Cleveland, where, I mean, this is if you're not going to spend any money and you're Cleveland and you're looking for someone who can maybe hit the ball over the fence, I guess this is a gamble you're you're going to try and take. Yeah, I mean, it's been nearly a decade, right, since a Cleveland outfielder hit 20 home runs in a season. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Florial may not get there because he may not make enough contact. I mean, he's run a high strikeout rate. Yep. Um, but he can play defense. And he can run, you know, in addition to the power that's come about the last two seasons, where I think it's, what, 43 homers, I think, over the last two years. He's also stolen, like, close to 65 bases in that time and not been caught very often. Like, he's got – there's power and speed and defense. It's just there aren't that many guys, even ones who post good walk rates in the minors, who strike out 30% of the time at any level in the minor leagues and right. end up being successful. There is only right. one Javi bias for a reason, right? <laughs> and eventually like, it was not, it was not pretty. Right. So there are, there or are Joey risky. Gallo, you yeah. know, like yeah, that's there, another. There, it, it's, it's possible, but I just find this fit in particular interesting because the offensive bar he is in theory trying to clear and compete with is the bottom, which is miles. Right. And it is the opposite. It is zero power, 20 power. And, put the ball in play and play great defense in center field. So that is an interesting contrast that will in theory be his competition um, in center field because ultimately Cleveland for, for a lot of the things that they've done well, they've just, they've traded away a lot of really good players on the offensive side. Um, And you could say some of those they should have seen coming. You should say some of those were just total failures in terms of internal evaluation. We talked a lot about the Yankees, you know, being good at not trading away players that come back to bite them. Cleveland, I mean, my goodness, there is a really long list of those guys recently from Nolan Jones and Will Benson. And now, of course, Junior Caminero is the one. You know, that's one that was at a lower mm-hmm. level, but at a lot of levels that they have that they have, you know, traded guys away. So to see them kind of take a flyer on someone else's, you know, failed prospect is is kind of an interesting uh, turn of yeah. events there. So it is a nice listen, landing the, spot for Florida. And the Yankees get a, a, a guy who's a prospect too. I mean, Cody Morris yep. is not nothing. He's got a good no. fastball cutter combination. Yep. 
he is kind of the pitcher version of Florio and that he's yeah. got good stuff, but he can't throw strikes consistently, yeah. right? And so they get optionable minor league depth, and it's probably a better use of a 40-man spot for them than Florial was, who you know had been dropped from the 40-man roster in April and then added back in September. So it's, right, right. I think it's an interesting deal. I don't know that it's going to end up impacting oh, either totally. roster particularly. Totally. But I do agree. When I looked at it, I was looking at Morris. I was like, oh, yeah, this is like the hitter version of Florial, except nobody knows who he is because his name's Cody Morris and he's right. on Cleveland. <laughs> As opposed to Florial, who has like been, you know, just discussed and analyzed so hypercritically yeah. for the last five years. Um, as a Yankees prospect. Well, so. Mike Bauman from Fangraphs knows who Cody Morris is because he pitches South Carolina. Oh, that's, so that's true. And which, which, which could, uh, he reunited with uh, Clark Schmidt, who he was teammates yes. with uh, for yes. a year. So there's a really good heartwarming holiday story there, Cody Morris <laughs> and Clark Schmidt. I always wonder with those, it's like there have to be cases of teammates, college teammates reuniting where they just hate each other, right? Like that has oh, yeah. to be a thing that happens all the time. And we just always assume like, oh, they were definitely you know, roommates or they were homies. It's like, no, like, what if, what if Clark Schmidt's like, Oh, Cody Moore, God damn it. Like Cody. Yeah. I, mean, I, I listen to be clear. I know Moore. nothing about Cody Moore as the person. So this is not anything about that. I just always find it funny that we assume that. So anyway, yeah, there, there are uh, definitely some high profile cases of that in the past. Yes. No, I, I well said, well said. All right. Anyway, uh, Mike Farron, this has been a delight. Thank you for joining me. On this Boxing Day edition of Prospect Barbacast, we're recording this on <laughs> Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we'll be back on Friday next week, uh, Prospect Barbacast TBD, because, uh, we, again, we got some some travel. We got some some stuff up in the air, but we're going to keep doing our best to, to bring you this show. But thank you, Mike, as always, uh, for joining me. Thank this you. Was a, a Happy pleasure. New Year. This was, this was great. Happy New Year to new. Hopefully your your hospitality uh, goes, goes swimmingly over the new year. <laughs> um, good luck with that. Uh, Thanks. Are you anything anything you're worried about, or is it going to be okay? No, it's going to be great. Like we're, it's like six of our closest friends, and oh. including one of my brothers and his wife, and so perfect. It's, yeah, it's going to be a lot of cooking and libations. So all right, it's be nice. fun in nice fun, weather, fun times in the in the Farron household. Uh, but thank you, Mike, for joining me. Thank you to Isabella Joseph for producing. As always, you can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail and we'll be back later this week, hopefully with Jake Mintz. We'll see. Goodbye for now. Serious XM Podcasts.